My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Jackie Clay and Ronnie Chandler are here for a discussion of Racing to Class, Confronting Race and Poverty in Schools and Classrooms. Thank you so much, Jackie and Ronnie, for being here today. So thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for sharing your lunch with us. We'll take some of that and some of that and some of that and some of that. Uh, One of the things that we wanted to do as we begin this conversation today is we're going to each share why we think this book is important to our city right now and then talk about our reflections from the book and then just open it up to a conversation to hear your reflections from either the book or thoughts that have been generated from conversation that we have. And so we wanted to begin by just giving a working definition for race, class, and privilege. So race is a socially defined subgroup of people with distinguishable physical characteristics which are genetically transmitted. So it's a constructed definition of people. Privilege is a right or a resource that one group has access to and from which other groups are denied. And then class, of course, is the relative social rank in terms of income, wealth, status, and or power. So we want, to, want you to begin thinking about a question. You'll have to answer this right now. We'll get back to it. But what comes to your mind when we ask you the question, why are people poor? What's your first thought? Why are people poor? And we're going to come back to that. So Knoxville is building out Innovation Valley, wanting to recruit and retain talent for a diverse workforce. We're hearing that across our city. Wants to develop young professionals, and we need creative problem solvers as we look toward the future. Yet Knoxville has also been recognized as the least diverse city in the state of Tennessee, in the entire state, and among the least diverse in America. School demographics look like this. According to the state report card, 57% of students in in the state are economically disadvantaged, white, 68%, black, 24%, Hispanic, 7%. Those are statewide numbers. According to our Knox County School District numbers, economically disadvantaged, 40%, white, 74%, black, 14%, Hispanic, 6%. And in Project Grad, the work that I do, working with urban schools, the demographics are 75% plus economically disadvantaged, white, 37%, black, 50%, and Hispanic, Latino, 12%. Our school district, as you know, just finished a task force study that showed that disparities do exist in our school system and particularly impact black students economically disadvantaged students, students with disabilities, and male students. These students are overrepresented in discipline. That means they're put out of class and put out of school and underrepresented in achievement, because if you're not in school, you're not learning. The study also showed a glaring lack of diversity of teachers and administrators in the schools. One of the top recommendations from the disparity study, and it's available on the Knox County Schools website. If you'll go to the community tab, 
click that and scroll all the way down to uh, the disparities task force. All of our work is there. The recommendations are there. All the data that we looked at are there. The feedback from focus groups and town hall meetings, all of that is there so you can have that information. One of the top recommendations from that study is cultural competency training. Racing to class takes a head-on look at confronting poverty and race. And so with the context of all of I just shared, this is a timely read for our community and addresses issues of cultural competence and effective practices for teaching students of color and students from poverty. So this is an important read, and it's a timely read. So we know that not everybody has had the chance to read the book yet, uh, but you may want to check it out from one of our great library branches in the city. <laughs> it is available. So when I read a book like this, I want to know about the author. So I want to tell you some things about Milner. Milner is the author, and then the, uh, Howard actually wrote the foreword, but the book was written by Professor Richard Milner. He's a professor of urban education at the University of Pittsburgh, the School of Education. He's a professor of education, sociology, social work, Africana Studies, and the director of the Center for Urban Education. He's 42, went to South Carolina State, Ohio State, has a bachelor's and master's in teaching and a Ph.D. in educational policy. His teaching career includes six years in Tennessee at Vanderbilt's Peabody College with an emphasis on diversity and policy. His research examines policies and practices that support teacher success in urban settings. So we need to get him to Knoxville. We can work on that. So I want to share a quote from page two and three from the book. Due to structural and system inequities for children who are living in poverty, whose first language is not English, and are who of color, education is an essential component of their upward mobility. In this book, I attempt to shed light on complexities of race, poverty, and education, and specify practices that educators, especially teachers, can employ to more effectively meet the needs of all learners. And we know that that's not happening in our system right now. We've got to do a better job. So his book takes a deep dive into looking at why do students fall out of love with school? You know, when kids are getting ready to go to kindergarten, they can't wait. They're so excited, except for that first day when they're clinging and they don't want to let go. But what happens to our children in the system to make them fall out of school? And so he focuses both on how schools work and individual teacher practices, particularly as it relates to students who are underserved in school. And then he makes specific recommendations, and this is a solutions-oriented book. He makes specific recommendations to school systems and to teacher preparation programs and to individual teachers on what they can do differently to better serve the needs of our kids. He illustrates that white students living in poverty often experience education and schooling different than black and brown students in similar circumstances. We know that 21st century student needs have grown, concentrated poverty, community violence, immigration, homelessness, needs of English language learners, special education needs. Students living in poverty may be more school dependent, and race is a real factor in people's lives. One of the things that really resonated with me from this book was the thing that is central to the book, that's this notion of a strength and asset-based perspective in working with students of color and students from, po from poverty. Every student 
Every family, every community has assets and strengths on which we should be building. The cultures and perspectives and the voices of students and their communities need to be valued. This counters the deficit view that often sees students and communities as liabilities, deficient, insufficient, and incapable of supporting expectations. Now, one of the controversial points of this book is the criticism of Ruby Payne's work around a framework for understanding poverty. Oh, it's collective gas, because that's widely accepted across this community and supported in this city. But he notes that he does not support her work, and I want to just share his thoughts from page 75 around why he says that. Criticism of Payne's work is extensive. Gorski, for example, found that Payne's approach and message fails to critique systemic barriers and inequities in schools, and she relies on culturally deficit models in explaining fixed categories. Her book also relies on research that is too thin to support her claims, and her work includes little critical analysis of racism, discrimination, and oppression. Unlike many other frameworks and conceptual analyses, Payne does address the elephant in the room race. However, her framework seems to do more to reinforce racial stereotypes than to address the systemic racism that prevents many students living in poverty from succeeding. That is, by suggesting that students and their families of color in particular do not understand how to operate in the white mainstream culture Pain does more harm than good because she operates from a deficit perspective that reveals her shallow understanding of race and the intersection of race and poverty. Moreover, Payne suggests that families living below the poverty line often do not value education, which again is a problematic conjecture that can lead teachers to believe they have little or no control over students' academic success and development. Teachers have a resource that does not challenge them to improve, but confirms that they are working with people who just don't get it. It is the parents and the students' fault that they're not succeeding, not the poor instructional quality students receive, the inadequate administrative practices that set the tone in a school, or the lack of or inequitable funding that prevents students from living below the poverty line from, from succeeding. And so taking on that work of a framework for understanding poverty is a controversial piece in the book and certainly one that might generate some more conversation around the city. Many urban students deal with what he calls continuous traumatic stress disorder, not post-traumatic stress disorder, because nobody's dealing with it. Uh, he makes four specific uh, suggestions for school and classroom reforms and covers them in great detail in the book. And those four things are infusing language arts across the curriculum, building and sustaining meaningful relationships, developing teacher knowledge and skills beyond academic content, and teaching and cultivating student social, organizational, and study skills. All of this while drawing on the students' interests, skills, tools, strengths, and assets. He calls on entire districts to support teachers in making these changes. He devotes an entire chapter to how teacher education programs can help. There's some specific things around one, page 145 there. He also talks about the impact of microaggressions, those little slights that people of color experience in a day that people don't even realize have happened. He talks about an, an experience of being mistaken for the janitor. 
So as Jackie gets ready to share her thoughts, I want to just say that in a book like this that's clearly directed to what can we do at school, sometimes we don't really understand how does that transition to those of us who are not in that setting. So there are five things that you can do. You can commit to an asset-based, strength-based approach and not a deficit perspective regarding people of color and from poverty. You can better understand the impact of microaggressions. You can better understand the impact of poor nutrition, limited birth decay development, community violence, stress, and how those impact the kids' ability to learn. You can support teachers in schools as well as students and families. And be mindful that opportunities should not be limited to background or zip code because this is about all of our children succeeding. Jackie, your thoughts. Hello, everybody. My name is Jackie Clay, and I just want to preface my part of this talk with telling you a little bit about myself so you understand the lens that I used when I read this book. I'm a social worker by training. I have a master's degree in social work from the University of Tennessee. I've worked as a community organizer. I've worked as a city administrator. I managed a program called Save Our Sons, and I'm currently executive director of the Free Medical Clinic of Oak Ridge. And so I've gone to many, many community meetings, and I've had lots of interactions with people who are in poverty for whatever reason. And so I just want you all to understand that I'm looking at this from a social worker community organizer lens. When I was employed with the city of Knoxville, we had a summit called the Sun Summit, and that summit was to allow boys and young men of color to give us their perspective on what they saw as issues going on in their school, in their community, and they gave us some really good feedback about the educational system. And as I read this book, a lot of those comments that I heard from the kids came up. They said that there were times when they would be sitting in the classroom and they would get the uh, answer right on a question and the teacher would assume that they were cheating. They talked about how something would be going on in the hallway and if there were African-American and Caucasian students, the teachers would automatically assume that they were the cause of the trouble. These are things that they experienced on a day-to-day basis. But they also talked about how on their way to school, they might be stopped by someone who was homeless. So they connected their environment, what they were experiencing on the way to school, you know, with outcomes for them in school. They talked about the teasing and things that went on. But what we heard again and again and again is that the students wanted to have more of a relationship with their teachers. They would always say, teachers don't take the time to get to know us. They don't spend any time with us outside of school. They don't know what's going on in our neighborhood, in our family, the kinds of things we have to deal with. And so in this book, um, Milliner talks a lot about relationships and communication and being intentional about getting to know your students. And those are some of the things that were really salient to me. But some of the things that I want to highlight from the book are his uh, views on equity, opportunity, and broadening the role for educators to include educator as a link. In terms of equity in education, 
He talked a lot about providing students with the opportunities that they need and deserve to succeed. And that was particularly important in his discussions about how we fund our schools. Some might think that if we give $100,000 to all of the schools, then we've been fair. But his argument was that it's not fair if there's a particular school that has more needs and the $100,000 doesn't even barely scratch the surface of touching those needs. So in looking at funding, we have to be equitable and just and provide funding according to the needs. For educators, we have to be responsive to the individual needs of our students. Now, if you're a teacher, you may have the perspective that it's all I can do to get through my curriculum every day. How can I spend all that time getting to know my individual students and how they learn? One of the solutions he has for that is having a smaller classroom size. And in his argument, he didn't say that having the smaller classroom size would increase test scores or academics. It was more about the relationship that is formed, the bonding that is established, and the opportunity for teachers to really get to know their students and the way they learn and to shape their curriculum to best suit the class of students they have during that particular semester or year. And in terms of communication, um, there were several examples in his book that I thought were great. But he does say that communication is important for strengthening relationship, and that needs to be something that happens from teacher to student, but it also needs to be something that's happening between the teacher and the parent, and then the teacher and the greater community. He had some examples of feedback that he'd gotten from students about what they wanted from their teachers and talked about how you could use that feedback to shape your curriculum. But he also talked about the importance of the educator sharing information with the class. There was one instance where he graded papers from the class and he found common themes and, and mistakes that were made in the papers. And when he gave the grades back, he shared with the class what he had found as common mistakes made across the class. And he said that because he was able to share with the class those common themes and mistakes that were made, there was a sharp improvement on the kids' papers because he didn't just write the individual notes. He shared with them, here's some things I'm finding that's going on with your writing. And he gave those to them bulleted. So he talks a lot about communicating with the class and how that improves outcomes for students. Another thing that really stood out to me in this book is that he encouraged educators to really study the neighborhood and the context and the history that their kids are bringing into the school. So, you know, understanding what the crime rate is, what, how many of your students have transportation issues, how many of them are from single-parent households, these are bits of information that you can find out by studying on your own, but those are things that really affect what the students are bringing in. And uh, I was talking to Ronnie last night. We had dinner at Calhoun's, and I asked her, 
if she found that some of the students from schools like AE or some of the project grad schools were having trouble selling coupon books. And she said to me, not a lot of them sell those coupon books because they would, spend, would be spending $10, which a lot of them don't have, and they would be buying coupons to places they can't get to because 40% of the students, they don't have transportation. So we look at it and we say, well, the parents aren't engaged. They're not trying to raise money for their school, but we don't take into consideration how they live their lives and the amount of disposable income they have. And if they can go to Chesapeake's to spend $25 to get the $5 off. And so it's that kind of thing that he challenges educators to do, to broaden your perspective, to put yourself in their shoes so you see the world how they see it. Another thing that really stood out to me is that he encouraged educators to be a link so that if you do have that student in your class who you see is struggling, you know about the community resources that exist to help you know where those opportunities are. When I was in school in social work, we learned about resilience and how there are risk factors and resilience factors. Risk factors could be living in a neighborhood that's full of crime, uh, living in a single-parent household. But resilience factors are those things that improve the likelihood that you will be successful. They could be mentors, coaches who take an interest, access to healthy food, even attractiveness. You know, being cute is a a resilience factor, and, you know, it's a protective factor, and it increases the likelihood that you will be successful. But if the educator knows of all of these fantastic resources, that could be one more protective factor, one more opportunity Those are the kinds of things that increase the likelihood that a student in your class will succeed. Now, Knoxville is working on these things. I would be remiss in saying that Knoxville is not doing work in the area of surrounding kids with protective factors and creating a school-at-the-center model. We have great schools partnership and the community schools model works across the country and we have that here and we have organizations like Project Grad who are with the kids in the trenches on a day-to-day basis but we still have a ways to go because the information that we got from the boys from the Save Our Sun Summit that was just done two years ago and the study from the disparities in education group was just done a year ago So there is still so much room for improvement. But I do believe that Milner gives us a place to start the conversation about what we can do as community members and educators to provide as many protective factors as we can for our young people. And so now what we would like to do is open the floor for some dialogue. If there were points in the book that were particularly salient to you, Well, if you have questions for myself or for Ronnie, we'd like to take those now. I was listening to Obama's Audacity of Hope. He mentions in there that, uh, and this was before he was elected, he just mentions that he felt that 
uh, talented teachers who go the extra mile should have the opportunity for merit pay to the point where, you know, by the time they've got a lot of experience and have shown a lot of improvements in children's test scores and working with kids, they be paid at the same level as a good attorney of the same experience so that I think that whole premise is great. And if teachers are to go the extra mile, spend the extra time, or have to learn more about their kids and be more of a, even a social worker, so to speak, then I do think that we need to invest more in paying teachers to do that because their job is every bit as important as any attorney's job might be. I agree with that um, because I think it would challenge educators to think about how to be creative and innovative and think about new ways to challenge students in the class. And uh, let's face it, incentives do work. In my opinion, incentives do work. You know, and it's, it's also important to invest in our teachers because there, I don't care what vocation or profession you pursue, you can't get there without a teacher. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. And so uh, it's important that we, that we do invest in, in our teachers. Um, but that's not the only thing. And we can't, you know, it's great. Every building has great teachers. You know, we probably, many of us, if we've had children or maybe our parents did this for us, that was this one great, like, third grade teacher, and you wanted your kid in that class. Every classroom should have that kind of teacher. Mm-hmm. What happened to the phrase, it takes a village to raise a kid? I, I do have a toddler, and I am thinking of her future. With this book, it opened my eyes up on so many levels that I was like, wow, this really does exist. And I think it's more than just the teachers and the educators. I recently became a Big Brothers Big Sisters. Going back to your question, what happened to children being so excited about school? I, I didn't ask this question, but uh, she questioned me. She's like, I don't understand why kids don't like school. And I was like, so do you like school? What do you, what do you like about school? And even though she was really shy, I could see that she was really passionate about what she wanted to do. So with the teachers and the educators, parents, principals, communities, politicians, I mean, we all have to come together, not just educators. Yeah. So, so uh, I think you are, you know, that your, your opening question, what happened to it takes a village, you're exactly right. It still takes a village. Mm-hmm. It has always taken the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think sometimes we need to think about, so why are the villagers not there? Mm-hmm. What has happened to the village? What happened to jobs in the village? What happened to housing in the village? What's happening to the emotional health and strength in the village that's constantly just bombarded with, with things that are happening in it? And so mm-hmm. it, it absolutely does take all of us. And all of the experiences that we have, we bring those. You know, it, the asset base, the strength base, the resilience and the smarts that a single mom has to have. You bring that, and you, you help students to see that you can succeed and be what you want to be. But then you have to help them to know what's along that pathway. Uh, we have a pilot that's an alumni of Austin East grad. He came and spoke to our virtual internship this summer. That night before, he had flown. Uh, if you flew that night before from Knoxville to Chicago, he was your pilot. 
But this was a kid who grew up in tough circumstances, but he had a mentor, he had a big, and he always knew he wanted to fly planes. They would go overhead and he would like lose all focus. <laughs> and so, but his big told him, he said, well, you can do that. He said, these are things you gotta do. He said, now, he said, look now, he said, you need to stay away from drugs and alcohol and you can never be arrested because nobody's gonna trust a $30 million jet to somebody with that kind of background. And so those shaped his choices. And so uh, your, your, the impact that you're having on that little is tremendous. And all of us need to do whatever we can. You know, you heard me say, time, talent, treasure. We can plug in somewhere. That's something we can do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, just to uh, follow up on what Ronnie's saying, I think that Milner shares your, your thoughts, too, and sees educators as part of a partnership mm-hmm. that includes community service organizations, social workers, teachers, parents, and students that there has to be a partnership and that the educator is just one link in the chain. My name's Ann Loy, and I was 30 years an elementary educator, half the time as a teacher and the other half as a principal. Most of my time was spent in low-income neighborhood schools. I learned some things the hard way, and when I became a principal at one school, the African-American boys were getting sent to me for disturbances that the school policy called for suspension. And, and I didn't like that. And I asked at a faculty meeting, why is that? The school was about 50-50 students, white, black, and the same with the faculty. And they were all experienced teachers. So all I, all I could figure out was that, you know, this organization of classrooms and straight rows and all that was was not the best way for some kids to to learn and I hired a new teacher who was a psychologist when I went into her room one time the kids were on the floor this was fifth grade they were on the floor they were in groups they were doing they were learning and and enjoying enjoying themselves so I'm I've as I say my heart has hurt for these kids and uh and I'm glad to see that Knoxville and the, and the schools are, are on the road, it looks like, to helping some of these situations. Thank you for your comment. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, Ronnie, if you could prepare, you read four items that teachers and, and schools need to have okay. reform done. But, but first I have a question. An, an educator recently said that we need to cut out all of the lecture type of curriculum. The, the idea that the, the, the teacher needs to be entertaining and the teacher needs to be performing and then the, the teacher loves to have some of the drama uh, directed to, to the profession that way. And, and um, by the fourth grade and, and on to the older grades, children need to be all doing project work and understanding that this is how the, the, the work life is. You get projects to work on and you, you fulfill those projects. Um, that needs to be shown in, in the schools, and yes, you need to bring students back together so they can take a common skill or they can take a, a, a few steps and understand how things work out, but then they need to go back to their projects. The teacher becomes a facilitator rather than the, the, the pitcher of water pouring into the glass, the right. half-empty glass. So one of the things that he emphasizes is that teachers need to do a lot of reflection on their own practice mm-hmm. and to, to expand beyond just having deep content knowledge. 
college. Mm, there absolutely needs to be team-based, project-based learning experiences. There's always going to be some lecture, mm -hmm. but it should not be the total way that instruction is delivered. Um, the four things that he talks about as classroom reforms were infused language arts across the curriculum, build and sustain meaningful relationships, develop teacher knowledge and skills beyond their academic content, mm -hmm. and then teach and cultivate the students around social, organizational, and study skills. And so those kinds of skills often come from project-based learning, those okay. team in, in engagement kinds of opportunities. Okay. So there's, there's a place for both, and there absolutely is a need for teachers to reflect on their practice and infuse more uh, project-based learning opportunities for all students. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. I grew up in a two-parent household, and I guess you could say that uh, my upbringing was upper-middle class. Uh, you know, even though I, I didn't come from a poor background, I have to say that I'm, I never enjoyed school, and I, I made A's and uh, scored well on tests, but I never enjoyed school because it always felt like it was a battle. It seemed like things that I knew about black history my teachers didn't know. For instance, a black man was actually the first person to perform open-heart surgery, also, blood transfusions, uh, the x-ray machine, and a lot of my teachers didn't even know information like that, had never read Langston Hughes, Alice Walker, James Baldwin. So uh, I'm wondering if maybe if curriculum was a little different and incorporated black history. Uh, I know the big thing now, uh, there's a movie out about Nat Turner, Birth of a Nation, and a lot of people I know are like, man, I never knew that story well. I mean, because of my parents, I knew about that story when I was in the fifth grade, but everything I learned about black history was because my parents and my great aunts told me I never learned it in school. And so I think maybe if curriculum was geared to include more, which I think black history is uh, history and shouldn't be separated, and that black authors uh, should be incorporated. Uh, I have a lot of cousins that were like me, we didn't grow up uh, in poverty or in low income, but we didn't have positive experiences in school, and that, that's my commentary. Well, in the thank, um, you. thank you for sharing that, yeah. sharing your experience. And in the book, uh, Milner does point out that curriculums don't need to be as narrow, that they need to take into account the individuality of the kids that you're teaching and also their individual perspectives, so their culture, their neighborhood, and encourage people to make it relevant to their lived experience. And so very, very strict curriculums are counterproductive, and they need to serve as a guide, but educators need to be allowed the flexibility to structure their curriculums in such a way that it takes into account feedback from students you know, their environment and things like that. Yeah. The infusion of African-American uh, black history from all over the world, it, it's, it's important so that we learn all, each other's story. Mm -hmm. We need to know that because it's part of this, the, the story of this country and mm -hmm. the world even. My wife taught at Green School for six years, and then our children went to Green and Vine and Austin East and graduated from Austin East. And um, uh, because of their experience, uh, some of these things that you're saying were really amplified in a personal way, not just in an academic way. When my wife was at Green, I would be over there, and I, w I heard on more than one occasion teachers talking about a, a child, a boy, 
in kindergarten or first grade and saying, this kid will wind up in prison someday. You're going to just kill me to hear it. But what happened, it seemed to me, that's sort of true. I mean, that cradle-to-prison you know, pipeline, and that those kids are kind of put in it down here on the front end, and those prophecies become true because everyone treats them that same way as potential inmates. And you mentioned that about, so what happens to these boys, in particular boys? You were talking about that takes a village, and you were saying the different elements of the village are gone, are weakened, but there's, there's some parts of the village that are very strong. Uh, one of those is the network that the kids themselves form. And because when that, those healthy elements aren't there, then they form their own networks for self-protection. And so my son was a part of some of those networks, and uh, some of his, you know, his best friends were uh, you know, drug dealers in, um, in high school and kids who were strong physically and uh, respected. So they had their own village just for self-protection. Uh, there were parts of the, of the school where my son couldn't walk down that hall unless he was with you know, one of the guys that were helping to protect him. This village then wound up with these kids gradually, these boys, gradually being tracked in a certain kind of direction. And so it's not merely unfortunate or discouraging. It's deadly. It kills. One of his friends in middle school was involved with a couple of other kids trying to rob a store in Lonsdale. The cops came. He ran. He had a gun. He killed himself before he could be caught. Travis's best friend killed his girlfriend and committed suicide himself. Then there was a, a boy who tried to rob them because my son was dealing drugs at the time. And the boy was shot and killed at my son's apartment. And I'm saying these things just to say that it's not merely just unfortunate. It is deadly. It's spiritually deadly to, to children uh, to be treated in a certain way. But a lot of it, it's deadly physically. And um, so that the reform of our support system, including our schools, for our kids is a lot, it can be a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing Thank the story. You. Thank you. I've been sitting here for the past couple minutes thinking about all the different stories I've heard and thinking personally that I could relate to them myself. I am a mother. I guess I'm technically single parent because my husband and I are separated at this moment and have been for several years. And I have a young black male child that's in pre-K. The difference between his previous class and now pre-K has been an emotional roller coaster. One of my son's favorite books is Hermie the Common Caterpillar, where they talk about this caterpillar to God the entire time, and finally he becomes a butterfly, what God had intended. But every day is like, when am I going to become something special? Um, well, on the flip side, I picked my son up from school later last week, and he said, Mom, why did God make me so bad? That our three months in pre-K have been, he still loves going to school for the most part, but it's constant. He's very high energy. You know, there's been a recent study that came out from Yale University where this actually begins in preschool. You know, labeling or stereotyping, getting in trouble for singing at the sink and dancing. Well, that's kind of my son. 
I'm like, he loves, and he's in pre-K, and he doesn't have any siblings. So really working with the schools to have that conversation, you know, trying to step away from the emotional part because it is, it is very emotional as a parent. And I'm also an educator and have grown up in a family of educators. But it is. I'm like, we're already starting this battle, and he's not four. Yeah. And, I have, and every day I think as a parent, okay, I have 14 more years of this. Yeah. So, any feedback on that on how First, to start I want to thank you for sharing your for sharing that story because that we need to understand this is happening right mm-hmm. now, and kids are being affected by this right now, and there's got to be conversation among educators about this is the because sometimes it's unconscious. I'll give you an example. It's that, that, that whole microaggression thing. There's this, there's this commercial that's running now. I thought about this last night. Uh, Tennessee, this empowerment, empowerment of women. Have you seen it? It's got Joan Cronin. It's got the mayor. And then it's, you know, can you run a million-dollar company? And then this cute little blue-eyed blonde girl says, I can do it. <laughs> and then Joan Cronin says, can you run a huge athletic? She said, I can do it. So they have all these different female leaders, and, and the children respond, I can do it. There's not one leader of color, no. not one child of color. So the message to me is, Mm-hmm. Not you. You can't do it. And so we've got to have this kind of conversation. We have to bring those real examples forward of how this is happening and talk about how do we do this differently mm-hmm. so that kids, all kids, can effectively learn. Do you want to add anything to that? No, that was perfect. That's it. We're out of time. Can, can I just add, you know, we asked that question, why are people poor? And so I want you to think about, you know, what were some of the things that came to mind real quick as, as we're getting ready to wind up? What? I, I, I carry something in my pocket all the time. Okay. Poverty is not an accident. Like slavery and apartheid, it is man-made and can be removed by the action of human beings. And that Nelson Mandela said that. And you know what? Mm-hmm. And on that, <laughs> we turn it back to you. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.